and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book, I'm Out of Works, at the Farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is eFarmPodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. All right. Today's guest is a repeater on the farm. He is the host of Operation GCD podcast. There he offers a shenanigans infused journey into the mind of the that particular garbage can dude live slash recorded from his studio slash bear the spare bedroom in the foothills of Appalachia directly from the overdose capital of America. Adding comedy to conspiracy theory, he explores the topics of quote unquote secret societies and other occult groups and such sad taboo subjects in our modern era as censorship some of those podcasts and series of articles he's written for operation tcd website include the founding fathers in the mounds they loved smiley face killers a modern day human sacrifice ritual and smells like laurel canyon the secret history of grunge rock before his foray into the world of quote-unquote conspiracy theory podcasting, he traveled the world for a couple decades as the poster child of the U.S. Air Force military police. In those travels, he discovered the occult history of America, the Society of Cincinnati, and America's ancient architecture, the mounds. Folks, I give you guys the great J.J. Vance. J.J., thank you so much for dropping by again today, sir. Stephen, great to be here. I appreciate the invite, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Got a good one planned today, and I think it'll be uh, an eventful show. Oh, it's always a good one, an eventful show with you, mate. All right, guys. It's, as do uh, you, sir. As you. Absolutely. So, guys, it's time for another look at the absolute fringes of American culture, though this isn't going to be quite as icky as the Kiwi Farms episode, I promise. We're... Well, actually, I take that back. We will get into incest a little bit, but not quite as much with the Kiwi Farm stuff, hopefully. Anyway, in this case, we're addressing modern-day vampire cults, and from Kentucky, no less. Yeah, there's there's actually more than one of them, and they both originated from around the same time in the 90s, and while being on opposite sides of the state, were both centered around uh, very occulted regions, and they also drew the attention of a lot of other curious characters of the same cloth as well. So if you're into Hillier, Penny Royal, serial killers, vampires, myth-making, or general high weirdness, or possibly incest, if you you know, actually do listen to this show for that kind of thing, and I pray that you don't, but whatever, uh, you're seriously going to dig this outing. We've got killer road trips, Discordian priestesses, and even the Simon Necronomicon for this outing. To say nothing of JJ's own incredible personal connections to the events we're about to unfold. So, on that note, let us start the show. 
So first off, JJ, what can you tell us about Murray, Murray, Kentucky? We talk about Kentucky a lot around here. So let's give the kids a quick rundown to add some perspective to this. Well, I think if I was going to describe Murray, Kentucky in any capacity, I'd have to describe it as the uh, heart of the Bible Belt. And uh, if you don't, if folks of the interwebs don't know what I mean by the Bible Belt, the extremely uh, Christian an extreme Christian uh, perspective, uh, townspeople. Um, basically, if you're not of the Bible, you're the devil. So right off, right off step one, that's anyone who's claiming themselves to be part of a vampire cult. This is not the scene you want to be involved in, in Murray, Kentucky for that kind of activity. So I imagine there was a lot of, there's a lot of eyes being uh, drawn to, to these characters from, from, from moment one as a result of the, the Bible belt nature of the town. And other than that, it's a pretty rural and small town, although it's in a, you know, a, a highly trafficked area of vacation goers to the nearby lakes in the area. The town itself is somewhat separated from the lakes. I mean, it's 15, 20 miles, but it's, uh, you know, to the, to the heart of the lake country there. But it's, uh, other than that, it's just a, been a rural for farming town, I think, for most of its existence. And it has a Murray, uh, Murray State University in it, which when the kids are in session there at the, at the university, the town doubles in size, basically. So it's a, it's a pretty small town and extremely Bible belty. Interesting. And it's, uh, it's over there, like in the Western part of the state too, correct? It is. It's kind of, uh, maybe an it's actually hour pretty close to the border, right. Of a couple of other states. Absolutely. Yeah. It's about an, maybe an hour and a half Southeast of Paducah, which sits there at the intersections of Illinois and Indiana and Kentucky. And then uh, it's maybe an hour north of the Tennessee border as well. So it's, it's got an interesting geographical location amongst the corner of many, yeah, numerous states. Yeah, no, I noted too that there was a pretty close to the Tennessee border. All right. So another interesting thing about Murray, it's about an hour from Hopkinsville and uh, about an hour and 15 minutes from Fort Campbell as the crow flies. A lot of Hell, You're Pity Royal fans listen to this series, so the former is familiar to them. Uh, for those of you who are unaware, Hopkinsville was the site of the infamous uh, Hopkinsville Hobgoblin incident. There's a lot of weird stuff about this case. It, uh, it kind of centered around a family that uh, thought that their farm had been 
invaded one night by these hobgoblin-like beings that wore these funny helmets and goggles and so forth, and they even uh, allegedly had a rolling gunfight with them. They discharged quite a few rounds from their shotguns. Local authorities were called out. It's to this day considered to be one of the more bizarre ufo incidences uh reported and to receive a significant amount of attention this would have happened i believe like around 57 58 so anyway the the incident in and of itself yeah Stephen, let me uh let me interject real quick because i had actually never heard of that incident until you brought it to my attention <laughs> and i previously thought that the the story i was going to tell about the murray vampire cult kind of was connected to the two strangest things in the state of Kentucky, number two and number three now, because this goblin situation is that's next level strange. That's gotta be the strangest thing I've ever heard of going on in Kentucky down, especially down to the, the MK ultra Sydney Gottlieb connection. Yeah. That's what I was about to get to. Cause yeah, it gets, even. Oh, I don't want to steal your show, but that's, that blew my mind when you told me that. And I looked and I started reading that on that subject and I was like, wow, I've never heard of this incident. And I'm completely enamored by by what I'm reading right now. Yeah, it's it's pretty nutty. So it's linked into MK Ultra. Sidney Gottlieb actually dispatched John Mulholland, a professional stage magician, to Hopkinsville to investigate this case. And all this is really interesting. Mulholland uh, was used to instruct uh, some CIA operatives in sleight of hand techniques and things like that. But Gottlieb would use him periodically uh, to investigate some of these sort of high strangeness incidences, which is interesting on a few levels. Um, obviously, as a professional stage magician, Mahalan would have been uh, very skilled with sleight of hand. He would have been able to recognize it. But he also had no formal scientific or medical training whatsoever, which... I think in some of these instances could be very problematic as well. Um, and the sort of uh, with him, you know, there was also a certain peculiar intrigue uh, involving a guy called Andrina Puharic. I'm sure a lot of you who listen to this are familiar with him, but if you're not, uh, Puharic was the guy who held the so-called seance that changed the world in 19, New Year's Eve 1952, and then another one in 1953 with a lot of Yankee blue blood types, you know, the DuPont family and people like that. And supposedly they were contacted by the grand need of ancient Egypt who were in reality, these trans-dimensional, non-corporal alien intelligences or something like that. The story changed quite a bit over the years. But anyway, Puharic was the guy who supposedly channeled these things at the seance, and this roughly coincided uh, when he was brought uh, back into the U.S. Army. But interestingly, he uh, specifically started pitching the weird stuff, i.e. investigating ESP, to the Pentagon's Office of Special Operations, and he was quartered by the U.S. Army's uh, Psychological Warfare Bureau. So anyway, the, um, you know, the whole story of the Nine starts to get bannered around, and there's some thinking that uh, it might have eventually been incorporated heavily into the Star Trek franchise. We don't really know. What has come out is that Puharic was involved in some capacity with Project Artichoke during his time in the military as well. And I need to point out here, uh, because a lot of people don't realize this, Project Artichoke was 
never, never rolled into MK Ultra. They were separate programs. They were run by different elements of the CIA. And on top of that, Artichoke was a joint CIA and military project. MK Ultra was just a CIA project. It was run out of the technical service staff. It was headed by Sidney Gottlieb. The Artichoke Project was a joint military project with the CIA. The CIA component was run out of the Office of Security, and it was headed by a guy called General Paul Gaynor. Just can't make this stuff up. And it, the day-to-day functions were overseen for a lot of years by a guy called Morris Allen. Artichoke did not end when MK Ultra started. They operated concurrently with each other, and they were both rolled up in 63 into separate projects. Now, there was also a rivalry between these projects, and Gottlieb at one point had dispatched John Mahalan to investigate Puharic, who was being sponsored by Artichoke when Puharic was investigating ESP at the Armour Institute in Illinois around, I think, 54 or something like that. So this is like another case of when Gottlieb was using Mulholland to investigate high strangeness. So again, all this stuff with Mulholland is very interesting. And Mulholland is another side note, greatly, greatly disliked Andrina Puharic. In fact, Mulholland probably played a role in getting uh, Puharic drummed out of the, uh, you know, these like really dark MK Ultra artichoke things, though he would get sponsorship from other elements of the government but it's it's a very interesting netherworld Mahalan was also close to the rockefeller family specifically nelson rockefeller of course the rockefellers were providing some funding for mk ultra so you had this kind of dynamic as well where you have kind of these neoliberal elites supporting mk ultra whereas um artichoke was getting a lot of support from people later connected to like the american security council a lot of far-right bodies so you had sort of some of the political intrigues also playing out in these programs and that's interesting so there was like a there was like a political divide there between the the two programs yeah 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 and Mulholland was actually playing a role in this i think by going after puharic Uh, puharic actually ran a fell the rockefeller family later too when he um started investigating alternate energy sources in the 1980s oh you can't do that for the rockefellers yeah he should have done better yeah that's that's another topic that's a that's a rookie mistake on puharic's part he he also had um he also went to go work with the sanford research institute correct not in an official capacity. Well, he was but, uh, like the yeah, they, for, uh, well, yeah, Yuri Geller. He was the Yuri one Geller, who yeah. discovered Yuri Geller, and Geller was actually later brought. Geller calls him his handler. That's like, too. yeah. Uh, no, go ahead. What were you saying? Well, Geller was later brought into the Nine Mythos as well. In fact, for a time, Puhari right. was like essentially trying to set Geller up as like a messiah <laughs> for the Nine or something in like the oh. mid-70s. You know, you got to read uh, Yuri, the biography that uh, Puhari wrote. It's just nutty, man. Oh, yeah. And, and appear- from the public statements Geller's made is since the, those two parted ways decades ago, he doesn't like Puhari very much. <laughs> yeah. He, he's publicly stated that he, he felt that Puhari was a CIA handler. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if there's any validity to that, but I think Stan, the connections of Stanford Research Institute are, are intriguing to me because it was run by, you know, OT7 or whatever they call themselves, the higher the higher ranking, highest uh, OT7 or OT8 Scientologists um, well, over there, Stanford Research Institute. 
there's just a lot of stuff about that. I mean, I, I'm going to do a big show pretty soon, hopefully on the nine that'll get into this like more so, but like, oh, nice. know, or going way back at a lot of uh, very strange connections. But okay, so Maholland, you know, like when they brought him out to investigate this stuff in the field, it was usually for a reason you know like i said in this case i mean it seems like they were trying to destroy puharic for you know some particular reason or other um in this case they send mahalan out to hopkinsville to investigate these hobgoblins there and this is as far as i'm aware it's the only really known incident of mk ultra directly investigating like a ufo centric kind of x-files like case which is another odd thing about this of all the you know the ufo incidences incidents that you could report that you could investigate you pick the one that involves hobgoblins with weird goggles and helmets. Okay. Right. You just you just nailed it there, Stephen. You're right on target. That's why I was so enamored by this story when you told me the details of that and I researched it further because it is, it's a very it's so strange that this is the case they chose to to, to study. But, you yeah. know, it, it makes it makes no sense in that in that context you just pointed out. And and in the, the moment MK Ultra gets brought into any subject, it, it, you know, alarm bells in my head go off because I'm familiar with the fact that my distant cousin, John K. Vance, is the individual who helped memory hole the MK Ultra program for the CIA out of their inspector general's office. And another interesting thing about this is the close proximity that Hopkinsville has to Fort Campbell, which houses several elite units, most notably the Night Stalkers. This is like a helicopter, uh, primarily like a helicopter unit, uh, which is part of the Joint Special Operations Command, or JSOC. Uh, and then it's also where the uh, 101 Airborne Division, one of the U.S.'s primary rapid response units, is also stationed. So, you know, you've got and that's kind of the second tier, um, just a real quick, another note, kind of the second tier behind uh, the uh, Delta Force guys there at Fort Bragg or whatever they're calling themselves these days. Um, um, well, yeah, yeah. The, I the mean, second tier of special forces Bragg, out of Fort but, Campbell. But yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the the Delta Force is like the elite of elite. Then you would have like the Green Berets and then. Like, right. But they're all out of they're like, all one group there at Fort Bragg. Blood. Uh, but yeah, yeah, no, you're correct about that. But yeah, yeah, yeah wh whatever, like their second tier special forces group is, and I, I, I want to say it's number three. Um, they're out of four cable well, as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, that I think you're thinking of the night stalkers. The night stalkers are considered that's who flies them around. Pardon me. That's who flies. So I have, a, I actually have a friend that was formerly part of the night stalkers. It's a West Point grad. Uh, uh, he, uh, he, he, he came over to the Air Force. He from the night stalkers to be a, a drone pilot all things but yeah he the night stalkers are the folks who, who yeah who do all the transportation with the, with the special operations community as you pointed out yeah yeah I have, I have limited interaction with these people I, I i you know i ran a i ran a national sales team for a defense contractor for two years uh a number of years back here and that's that's my that's why i'm saying i have a, I have a limited basis of knowledge of what goes on at Fort campbell not that much, but yeah, they, the special forces operations there. My point being is they have a, a high, a high uh, concentration of special forces operations 
out of Fort Campbell between the, the uh, Special Forces group and the Night Stalkers. Right. Well, see, I will say long winded way to get I, there, but I got there. <laughs> I have declassified uh, FBI documents from the PACCON investigation that they were doing in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, this is after the order had been broken up and they were supposedly going through the white supremacist underground to try to find more terror threads or something. So sure. they had investigated the civilian material assistance group, which was later implicated in Iran Contra and a lot of other stuff. And um, they had found out that uh, they were getting, uh, they were in contact with members of the 20th special forces group uh, which is headquartered out of, I think, um, it's somewhere in Alabama, I think Birmingham or something like that. But they, for, for Rucker, I think? Something like that. But they had yeah, a we're... detachment that was operating out of Fort Campbell. And the 20th Special Forces is really interesting, along with the 19th. These are two of the uh, the the uh, Green Beret units that are in the National Guard and not like the regular. That's what I was going to that's what I was going to point out to you. Yeah, so those are the National Guard components but that see, operate out of Fort Campbell. What's really interesting, though, is the documents I have indicate strongly that this 20th Special Forces group would be involved in continuity of government operations if sure. the official you know, government was incapacitated, which is why it's no, interesting I, that it's... I'm familiar with it. When I, uh, when I mentioned to you before, maybe all, you know, before the show started, but I spent a couple of years in, out of my military police career in the Air Force as a logistics planner, as a war planner, operating out of headquarters in D.C., doing current operations. Uh, I was involved in the uh, continuity government stuff. So, yeah, that, you're, you're spot on with that assessment. Awesome. So, yeah, this is like, you know, and I mean, again, that also brings up some disturbing possibilities that these guys are working with a group like the Civilian Material Assistance or the Order of St. John or the Phantom Battalion. And but yeah, again, I'm not familiar you know, with that report, but I'm interested. I mean, that you well, bring together some interesting connections in my head. You, like, you know, again, if you, you look at how like the Green Berets were working with, you know, the same kind of groups in Europe as part of Operation Gladio. I mean, it's um sure. You know, you can kind of see some parallels with that. But, JJ, what do you make of these locations? I mean, you've got really elite military units there. You've got MK Ultra people sniffing around a weird incident there. It's all <laughs> unfolding within like an hour of where this, this vampire cult later turned up in the 90s. I mean, it's, 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 it's very weird. It's all very bizarre. And I've been to all these places, so I'm familiar with the landscape and environment from, from these places. It's all very, and I find it all very bizarre. And, you know, in, in, I mean, relative to the, the the story we're going to discuss today with the vampire, I think they call yeah they call themselves the vampire clan. I just always end up calling them the vampire cult. Um, so I'll I might you know interchange those two two, two terms in reference to them. But I had never heard of them <laughs> prior to the day I heard of them when I was in Murray, Kentucky. So you know uh, that you know prior to that day, I mean Kentucky was fairly normal. You know, so it got pretty weird that day, and it's. And the more I learn and and uh, about stories from Kentucky, I, it gets progressively weirder and more bizarre, for sure. Oh, it definitely does, man. All right, let, let's talk some Rod Farrell now. His vampire cult allegedly grew out of role playing. So, what was up with that? That's what the story goes. But I, you know, I I I have a general rule in life that I I believe none of what I hear and half of what I see. <laughs> so. You know, I tend to look to see what the actual story is. And I just, I, you know, I think I may, maybe had heard of this case 
contemporary to it happening in the 90s. But it was at the tail end of the satanic panic, which turns out to, you know, have some validity to it as well. You know, you know, again, once again, believe half none of what I hear. And, you know, there's actually instances of ritual sacrifice in the 1990s involving, quote unquote, satanic cults. So, but was it the panic that it was made out to be? That's probably why it was the panic that was made out to be to deter from the actual circumstances that were going on. And this this incident occurred at the very end of that. So in what nineteen ninety six, correct? That, that's the date of the, uh, the the where the the vampire cult came to their murderous the murderous. Yeah, I believe this was yeah ninety six. So th- this is already so you know in my mind at the time I probably wrote it off immediately because I'm like oh these kids learned this from Dungeons and Dragons too because that was already the storyline that had been going on for like a decade. All of my childhood, I feel like everyone was killing people in satanic cults because of Dungeons and Dragons. I've never played the game, but at no point in time did I ever believe that was an actual thing, right? So, you know, once I became Actually, encompassed... I interject, and I have played yeah. D&D before. I would consider myself something of a fan, but when I looked into that, there there's actually been a, a surprising amount of deaths from people who and just weird sort of um murders with people who have been playing D. so that i 100 percent agree on i just i'm lost in the causation and correlation aspect of it i don't well, know it's Maybe also, it's, just me. it's it's just interesting because the creators of D were actually from lake geneva wisconsin which is where hugh hefner had that resort uh, that had the recording studio a lot of these industrial bands like nine inch nails and ministry sure in the late 80s early 90s and the wrigley family um, so are you I mean, if you're, I'm, I mean, I'm into it. If you're insinuating that this is some sort of demonic possession that could be transpiring, that some not, people play the game. I mean, the idea, I just, to it's me, just in my mind, it's just interesting that I it's coming out of that same area. But yeah, I know <laughs> what you're saying. I mean, you know, again, I personally played D and a pretty decent amount of times. So I mean, it's yeah, you're not you know, anybody, Part of so, me right? is like, okay, it's ridiculous <laughs> to even think that something like that could happen with it. But then part right. of it, like, well, there were a lot of weird characters involved in these. You know, we didn't even get into like the Stephen Jackson, you know, card games, for instance. You know, who did the Illuminati deck? Yeah, I was gonna say the Illuminati guy. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I'm into the idea for sure. I'm it's, into the idea. I just it, I haven't really seen a lot to to. To move my to move my opinion in that direction, but I'm, I'm, I'm open to it for sure. Yeah, it's just it's a weird thing because, like I said, it's not the kind of stuff I like invoking because it does seem so silly. But when you just kind of look at the culture with some of these role playing games and some of the stuff that's come out of it, it's like, well, that's you know, you would think that this is a little weird that you would have so many killings or just this weird stuff with like the Illuminati game and some of this other shit. Well, I'll, I'll, Stephen, I'll offer you some anecdotal evidence from my from my from my life that, that may support your theory there about Dungeons and Dragons and you know, weird cold activity later as a result. My uh, younger brother, he he's a college professor. Uh, um, he's got a uh, upside down pentagram tattooed across his, uh, his belly, fairly large. And the first time I saw it, I said, yo, what's up with the uh, upside down pentagram? He goes, no, no, it's right side up from, from where I'm looking. I'm like, That's, this is not a constructive conversation. But he was a very heavy Dungeons and Dragons player himself. I don't know. You know, I'm open to the idea. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe some people can just because take it too seriously, and it leads them into well, some other paths, maybe that uh, are more serious. <laughs> yeah, and, and I actually agree with that. With what you just said, and the way I look at it is, if there's somebody that exists that's going to go down that path, well, that's the most reasonable starting stepping stone, right? Is they're looking for kind of 
you know, something of an occult nature, that would probably be a game that somebody like that would be drawn to. That's that's the kind of the way I look at it. Yeah, easily accessible too. I mean, you can get a lot of this stuff. I mean, at Walmart. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking Magic the Gathering, but yeah, it's not that hard to get. Well, that was I was say that that's kind of the next evolution of the concept, then, right? It's Magic the Gathering. You know, they kind of took the. I, I've never played either. Just my understanding of both. I love they kind of took the, the best Gathering. parts of. Yeah, as I was say, they kind of took the best parts of Dungeons and Dragons and and kind of made a, a, a similar game out of it. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, it's I I don't even really like getting into this because you know again I was that kind of nerd. I love Magic the Gathering, so I, I played that actually way more than D and D. I definitely sure that's something I could do for like hours. So, and no, I I'm definitely into the idea. I just uh, you know I'm not, I'm not willing to rule it out. I just think in, in Rod Farrell's case, he seemed to have a lot of other influences in his life, notably his prostitute mother. Yeah, and, uh, she was involved in drug trafficking as well. So once, you know, you're in, if you look at any of these quote unquote satanic cults, they're all involved in prostitution and drug trafficking. So when you see prostitution and drug trafficking in other environments, then I have to ask myself, where's the cult? Well, before we get into his mom right quick, I wanted to uh, briefly touch on another interesting figure in all this. And that was Heather Zoe Windorf, who was allegedly what brought Farrell to Eustis, uh, Florida. I think that's how it's pronounced. Um, and the primary witness again him later because she turns yeah, yeah she yeah. got a deal she got a deal real quick so they had apparently known each other for some time and Farrell planned on helping her run away her family had some interesting ties her grandfather was allegedly an attorney for evangelist billy graham so do you have anything really yeah yeah that is interesting i did not know that yeah, no, that was nuts when I saw that, because from what I recall, Eustace is a pretty prosperous community, right? It's like north of Orlando. It's um. Oh, yeah, Lake County, that area, Lake County, Florida, very, very affluent. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is, um, yeah, it's, you know, you got to have some bread to, like, live in this area. So I thought that it was... Well, A, it's interesting that Farrell was ending up there because his family, by most accounts, was not that prosperous. But then, I mean, he's also hanging around with this girl whose grandfather was a prominent attorney and who had worked for Billy Graham. It's well, Graham, of all people, he's an interesting character. After Jimmy Carter nearly got assassinated in a parking lot in Los Angeles in May of 1979, he, ret- he never went back to the White House. He went to Camp David and called B- Billy Graham to come stay with him. <laughs> interesting so billy ram's certainly got some connections yeah no i definitely thought that that was very interesting and i mean again when you get into an attorney too for a figure like that i mean god these you know that's somebody that definitely needed to know well, yeah he's got he knows where the body quote unquote where the bodies are buried so to mm-hmm. speak you know yeah 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 well i mean just a, just a quick you know uh you know relative comparison if you want to look at the quote unquote manson family killings they're allegedly a you know a satanic cult that is murdering these people, but you know there's there's a flip side of that narrative which seems to indicate that they were a hit squad for some mafioso type activities of, of drug trafficking, and and uh, well if you look at it in some, some sort of similar capacity here, is the vampire clan or cult the um, the hit squad for some sort of similar type of operation, All right, being so- controlled by other parties. All right, so who are the other relevant figures linked to the crimes that we need to cover before getting into the murders? I'm assuming uh, Farrell's mother would be at the top of the list, right? Yes, and that's, you know, apparently she was a complete, and this is from, so I'll, I'll give you a quick, let me give you a quick rundown of how I have any knowledge of the inner, inner workings of the situation. 
I had a very uh, strange. The, re- the only reason I have any inner, inner knowledge of this this entire vampire cult situation is because Rod Farrell was a foster child at my friend's cousin's house in Murray, Kentucky, and I went down to Murray, Kentucky with my friend. We drove down there for spring break of our high school senior year. Nothing better to do. Most kids go to the beach. We decided we we're going to go uh, enjoy the uh, the green grass of of Murray, Kentucky, because you know the the uh, the marijuana of that region is, is, uh, famous for its, uh, you know, the soil down there and whatnot. And, uh, so we're down in Murray, Kentucky, staying at his grandma's house and next door to his grandma lives his, his cousin, you know, and, uh, I'm over there playing video games one day because it's March madness. And we were watching March madness while simultaneously playing video games of March madness in a, in our own style tournament. We were very, we were very uh, engrossed in those activities but his cousin, who was some sort of karate champion uh, or some sort of martial arts champion, who's just doing all sorts of martial arts demonstrations for us, even though we're not even paying any attention, starts telling me that I'm sitting in the in the chair that, that the vampire cult leader used to sit in when he played video games here. And that's when I had to pause my video game and say, what happened? <laughs> and he proceeds to tell me that they were the foster family for Rod Farrell. This is immediately prior to the murders because Rod Farrell had been taken away from his his prostitute drug trafficking mother and then shipped off to his grandparents' house, but his grandfather had raped him. I believe is how it went. And then, then he went to foster foster care as a result of that. And then this is the foster family he was living with. They were a preacher, local Christian preacher. And in fact, the, the fellow who's doing the martial arts demonstrations while telling me about a vampire cult leader that used to sit and play video games in the same chair I was sitting in, you know, he's, he's, he today, he's a preacher. Um, so, you know, at the time he was a youth preacher and not only was the Rod Farrell part of, you know, part of his foster family and they were the same age, they were both 16 there at the same time when Rod Farrell committed the murders, he was 16. Um, they, uh, this fellow was a youth preacher and he actually, in telling me this whole tale of Rod Farrell and the vampire cult, which was completely blowing my mind because I hadn't even heard of the story before, let alone thinking I'm sitting in the chair of some uh, vampire cult leader who went on some sort of murdering spree. Um, he's telling me, the youth preacher's telling me that he used to go try to preach to these cult, the cult members. So he would go to the cult meetings with Rod Farrell and attempt to, to preach to the, uh, to the, to the kids there. And uh, you know, in the cult and he, there were some older folks in the cult according to him as well too. So that's where that kind of the narrative from it was all a bunch of just a small loose knit teenage group where these are the official narrative not from the stories I've been told. It was a much larger group and it wasn't that close. It was fairly, I mean, not, not loose. It was fairly close knit. They're a fairly tight group of people. And uh, the only reason again, that this fellow went because he lived with him and his foster family. And, and uh, I don't, I, I suspect Rod Farrell didn't want to tell his, his foster uh, family that uh, brother there that uh, he didn't want him to come to the cult stuff. Cause this again, this guy's a martial arts champion at the age of 16 and, and while he's telling me this story, he's not even losing a breath. He's just doing like roundhouse kicks to a heavy bag. That's the kind of martial arts champion I'm talking about. So I imagine, and then I, you know, I quickly wondered, did you, did you fear for your life going to, you know, murderous vampire cult meetings? You probably kind of answer my Jesus do bracelet ones. So no. Exactly. No, probably a what would Jesus do t-shirt. And I said, well, and I, I kind of answered my question as I'm asking it. Cause he's just, again, he's just Chuck Norris roundhouse kicking some, some heavy bag as he's telling me the story without losing a breath. I'm like, I said, all right, man, let's stop. Let's, let's pause the video game. We got to go. Uh, we got to go see these vampire sites. So he, he drove us around to my, 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 my friend, his cousin, 
uh, drove us around. Uh, the, the youth preacher guy drove us around to the uh, the sites that um, that he'd been to. You know, with with the vampire cult. And there was like three sites in town. One of them was the uh, you know the van the infamous vampire hotel, but by that point in time, it had been destroyed. So we're talking like 1999. So and the uh, the murders kicked off in 96. So sometime in between there, they had destroyed the, the primary you know uh, location of of the vampire cult hangout. Uh, that was over towards the lakes again, like uh, Murray, Kentucky is about 15 miles from that location that I'm thinking of, at least the lakes. It's a, it's a decent drive. And they had a spot downtown in Murray. necessarily directly in the town. It was more in the outskirts is what you're saying. Yeah, the primary spot was, but they had a spot down in town in this old, like big giant, like sewage culvert thing. I, you know, I could, I could probably get back there again if I needed to, but I don't know the precise location to describe it today. You know, then it, it was down in the city of Murray, Kentucky, and it was like a large, like 20 foot by 30 foot style, like concrete, empty, you know, culvert that was formerly used for probably some sort of water irrigation for the farms or something at some point in time, but had not been used anymore. It was abandoned. That was another, that was the like one that sticks in my mind. Something like that? What's that? Was it like a water tower? Like something like that? Like a, no, like a, like a reservoir. Like, you know how they build oh, like okay, uh, okay, okay, okay. the concrete kind of reservoir things that, to kind of di- di- divert water at times? Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. One of, it was one of those, but it wasn't used anymore. You know, it was, it was, you know, the grass was growing out from, you know, the concrete and stuff like that. So that was one of the sites. So, I, you know, they definitely had multiple sites. It was definitely, you know, because this, I think the narrative from my understanding the official narrative is they all, it was a, just a couple, you know, it's like the Columbine kids and the Trenchco Mafia, you know, they were, no one wanted to admit that there was more than just the, the ones that they, the, the, the quote unquote Trenchco Mafia kids. It was a larger group. And this would be the same circumstance as far as, you know, those things happen almost. To my, to when I learned about this was March of 99 and the Columbine thing was April. So maybe that's why the two things stick in my head like that. With as far as, you know, they're like, no, there's no more of these. There was only this small group of kids, and they weren't really, they weren't really that organized. And my understanding is there was an older group of people steering the 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 vampire people, the vampire kids there, Murray, Rod Farrell being the leader of amongst the teenage group. So he was always, you know, constantly recruiting new members to the to the vampire cult, and uh, in, in the recruiting process, to my understanding, there was a good deal of blood blood drinking that was involved in the in the, in the ritual. Um, again, this is all from my tour guide, uh, my vampire tour guide, the youth preacher, um, slash, uh, foster family brother of Rod Farrell. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, it, you know, to me, the official narrative is, you know, a couple kids, they were really well organized and they went on this weird, uh, murder spree all the way to like 800 miles away. Right. You know, to me, in, in my mind, I know better <laughs> as an investigator. I know better. There's more. There's more details and connections than than just that, right? It's not just some arbitrary and random incident. And you know, especially with the knowledge I knew of the vampire cult from from a firsthand witness of the situation, it seemed to be more organized in in a, in a larger effort, collected effort by people imposing uh, these these activities on Rod Farrell, and then in turn on new recruits, if you will. All right, so let's get into the actual murders then. Can you take us through those? And the kind of backdrop to like, you know, how they ended up in Florida and all this other good stuff. Sure. So it's, it's my understanding that Rod Farrell was, and he's a, he actually, speaking of Rod Farrell, he, he recently got his uh, appeal, his final appeal denied to overturn his uh, life sentence because 
I'm sorry, his, de- his death, his death sentence. Cause he was the, he was the youngest person in us history on death row. He got death sentence at the age of 16. His cohort, the only other male on the, uh, the murder spree, I believe was named, uh, Scott Anderson. Sounds right. <laughs> you can correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> the, uh, I don't try to remember these kids' names uh, off the top of my head, but feel free to interject, Stephen, if you, if you got them handy. But yeah, so Scott, I think with Scott Anderson, he actually just got his his essence overturned. I, I think just to a life sentence. The two girls that were they were with them, it was not the the girl, the daughter of the uh, of the victims. Uh, they're in Eustis, Florida, uh, Wingard. Uh, the two other girls, uh, is it? Chastity Kesey and the other ones escape, <clears throat> escape my memory at the moment. But uh, those girls, I believe it was Charity Kesey, I believe. Ch- Charity, okay. And uh, what was the other one? That was K E E S E E. Yeah, Kesey. And what? But what was what was the second girl's name? Uh, went to prison. Uh, we just said Charity Shake uh, uh, Kesey. Um, and this was so that was his, that was his main girlfriend, supposedly. That's what I was getting yeah. at. So the other. Both those girls that went to prison with 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 the two boys for the murders, they were both Rodney Farrell's girlfriends, right? So the, it seemed to be his shtick was he was recruiting young women, and part of that process was they were drinking his blood. Now I was just told years ago he was drinking blood, but when I looked at the, the court record and stuff, that's what was reported in the court record was these girls were recruited and drinking his blood, and they did. And the, the Wingard girl, he recruited into the vampire cult the morning of the murders. And apparently they had a uh, ritual in a nearby cemetery down there in Eustis, Florida, where he went through the same process and she drank his blood because he claimed to be um, some. uh, Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off here. Oh, go ahead. No, by all means. What what do you got? Also, too, there was apparently an earlier incident from, I think, October or something before they had left. But it was um, Farrell was among a group of teens accused of, I'm reading here, from True Vampires by Sandra London, who we'll be talking about soon. Uh, but anyway, Farrell was uh, yeah, for, no, for sure. But that's what I was. So what you're, what you're saying there? Yeah, absolutely. There was numerous incidents, from my understanding. Man, maybe there was been one major one that got publicized. Well, yeah, that's what I was alluding to before. Yeah, with like the Bible Belt situation. Well, they were accused of bringing into an animal shelter and beating forty dogs, mutilating two puppies, or something like that. Uh, the sheriff. Was I was unfamiliar with those details, but I, I I could see that. <laughs> and apparently, they had pulled the legs off of another one. So um, yikes. Yeah. Yeah. So they obviously, like I was saying, they, they had obviously drawn the attention of the townspeople of Murray, Kentucky. There was no, it wasn't like, hey, is that the vampire cult? They're like, hey, have you seen the, the vampire cult? Because everyone was talking about it before the murders, before the murders. Right. Yeah. So it's no, a strange, no. strange environment. Strange environment. And I had, I was unfamiliar with this uh, animal shelter incident and it's quite disgusting, but I could see it. Yeah, I could see it. These people, I mean, if we're, I know we're going to get into the murders, but I mean, just the gruesome de- nature of the murders. I mean, you know, sure. Yeah, I can see them doing that, the dogs. Yeah, no, I mean, it was uh, definitely interesting. And apparently, Farrell also claimed that he had started torturing and mutilating animals since the age of nine years old. Uh, apparently, he boasted of beating cats to death and that kind of thing. Uh, so, um, also, too, to give a little bit more backdrop here before we get into the murders, it was uh, when he turned 16, he got into this one specific role-playing game, allegedly with, like, other people. It was called Vampires, the Marquee, 
the White Wolf game. And uh, this apparently led to an obsession with him opening what was described as the gates of hell, the gates to hell, excuse me, which uh, he had picked up from the role-playing game. So Interesting. Yeah. So, like, in your experience with any, with like, are you familiar with that game at all? I, I, I had never no, heard of it no, until no. I read about it in the court record. No, I was not familiar with that game. Um, so, so yeah. like, my, then my, I, I, mean, I hadn't either, but if I, that's not really my genre of games or anything like that that, I, that I've, I've ever, ever played before. So, if, if, you know, my my immediate question was, was that even really a game? You know, I was like, I've never heard of this, you know? Like, you know, yeah. I, when I read it in the court record, I was like, is is this even a real thing? That was my first, you know, because again, another relative comparison to the Manson trial. If you read that court record, holy fictional nonsense. Oh, by the way, I think the other uh, uh, woman too that was with him was uh, Dana Cooper. There we go, Cooper. So that was his other little girlfriend. Key, uh, Shay Keezy girl was his main, his main squeeze. But that was his Cooper was his, his you know again he he seemed to be building a harem of these vampire vampire girls it's vampire kind of ladies weird how her name almost like links up with Dale Cooper from Twin Peaks too um and then of course he always had the Diana you know tape he's talking to I don't this is something really odd that's uh, jumped out with me with the names with some of these people too um yeah I mean there's there there could be some interesting correlations there one of the things that really jumped out at me about, if we're talking about this the, the you know, the surface of the, the cult group members here, they're fairly disconnected, right? I think uh, Kesey, you know, there's, they all had inter, they all cross paths with Rod Farrell at some point in time, right? But I'm saying, like, the one girl's from South Dakota, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, the, then, then this other, then the girl that, that got off, got cut a deal with the, uh, with, and turned turn witness against the, the cult, the girl who they murdered her parents. She, you know, she's in Florida. She's 800, 800, 700, 800 miles away from Murray, Kentucky. You know, so there's really seems to indicate a larger network to me, right? Like, I mean, it just, I mean, yeah, the internet existed. Yeah, et cetera. You know, it wasn't, but it wasn't the age of information we're kind of in now as far as connecting people in different places. It's kind of hard to contact somebody 800 miles away in 1995 or 1996. Well, I mean, especially, too, to plan out, like, that kind of road trip, like you're saying, with these, you know, basic right. teenagers and what have you. Um, yeah, there was discussions had. I mean, they didn't just get in the car and just, let's go to Eustis, Florida, you know? Uh, it's interesting, too, just a uh, quick side note. They le- The day they left uh, for Eustis, Florida was on uh, November 22nd, 1966. Uh, that's, of course. Oh, I did not know that. Really interesting. Yeah, so, but- yeah, I mean, again, I think there's some interesting correlations to look at with this whole group of stuff like that. The dates they're doing things, the That's manner in which they're accomplishing them. Fascination, by the way, for those of you uh, unaware. Yeah, I think I think I think there's definitely grounds for further research and, and study in, in some of those environments in this case of the of the vampire cold case. Because again, th- they're doing rituals, I and mean, there's no there's no there's no doubt about it. This is a ritualistic cult, right? They admit to doing same themselves. The rituals they're doing are bizarre, if you ask me. And so at that at that point in time, they're probably doing these things on specific times for a reason and a reason in their eyes, at least in their perspective. So I think the dates would be important. So for some, for some, you know, perhaps yet to be identified reason. 
All right. Um, you want to get back to the merge? Sorry, I didn't mean to keep interrupting you. No, I like it. Yeah, I like it. I hadn't really considered that, but I mean, when you mentioned it, I mean, they are the ritualistic cult. I mean, if we're gonna you know, we're talking about the murders. They committed a ritualistic murder. I mean, uh, the the murders go as follows. Apparently, they you know some they connected with this Wingard girl down in Eustis, Florida, and inducted her into the vampire clan cult that day, and. That night, uh, apparently Rod Farrell ate a bunch of LSD and uh, went inside the house. He's the one. So the reason why his death penalty stuck is because he is the one who actually perpetrated the act. The rest of the rest were accomplices, but he's the one who actually went into the home um, and beat beat both the mother and father with a crowbar to death. When I say to death, they were allegedly still clinging on to life when the vampire cult then conducted a ritual, putting the parents in the middle of the room and involved whatever the ritual was involved fire because they end up burning portions of the house on fire and you know part of the investigation was saying you know the investigation record said it wasn't an act of trying to burn the house down it was an act of whatever ritual they're performing in the living room around the two dead bodies there was also what that ritual um, was i don't think it's ever been answered there was also like the the um uh, the windorf chick's brother too right i seem to remember there was like a kid like a younger kid who had survived even though he was severely beaten Right. And I keep on saying Wingard, I think. Yeah, Windorf. There we go. I'm terrible yeah, with that. Windorf, Windorf. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that, that, well, that's why it made me so, uh, when you brought up the point that this this fellow was an attorney for Billy Graham, I, that's why I find that intriguing because it seemed targeted, right? Yeah. In, no, fact, it, in it, fact, Rod Farrell's own statement said he did not intend to kill the, the mother. Now, now, now that now that you mentioned this point to me, I'm which just, is I'm interesting, yeah, I think the dad would have been um, this, if I remember correctly, was the son of the attorney for Billy Graham. So yeah, that's what I'm saying. So if you're targeting that family for some reason, that when you made that point, like I'm I'm replaying the court the court record in my head right now, Rod Farrell actually said in his own statement that he did not intend to. I mean, it's quite a vulgar statement he made. A lot of expletives in there. I'll leave those out. But Rod Farrell said that he did not intend to kill the mother. But she threw a pot of hot coffee in his face, and he severed her brainstem with a crowbar. Not to be too gruesome, but that's what I'm saying. This is a gruesome attack. That's that. That was his response to to her throwing. He's he, you know, he even made a comment. He's like, I thought she was going to say, "Hey, did you kill my husband? You want a pot? Want a cup of coffee? Or you know, some smart ass comment." This is this was his statement, right? Um, something to that effect. He's like, so I killed the you know, I, you know killed the lady. You know, severed brainstem with a crowbar. That was his you know. So he admits that. To you know, that emphasizing the gruesome detail of the murder there, and, and his own, and the killer's own words, nonetheless. But he admits in those words that he 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 was not intending to kill the the wife. So it's interesting that it does it does seem like the father was was then a targeted victim. They wrote it off later by saying uh, in the official record that that, that uh, Heather Windorf, I'm about to call her Windgard again, Heather Windorf had been molested by her father and that's what caused Rod Farrell to want to kill the man because he'd been molested by his grandfather. Again, that's why he was taken out of his grandfolks home and put into foster care. So is it a valid statement? I mean, was he, you know, is it, was there some beef there? Maybe, I don't, you know, hard to tell. I don't know that there's any record of Heather Windorf being molested by her father. That's simply a story she told. And again, she got off scot-free. So in my opinion, She's gonna she's gonna sing whatever whatever number they want her to sing, because again the other girls got you know the other girls got twelve and like sixteen years in prison, 
they're out now, but I mean, they went, they got convicted of, you know, accessory to murder and spent a, a large amount of their life in, inside of prison. So Heather Windorf did not. So again, she was involved in it. She, from all intents and purposes of what's available to decipher of how the whole thing got planned, she was the one who planned it. She even gave Rod Farrell the key to the house. So again, it's, it's, it, it's strange for Julie in my mind to ever let that girl off for anything. She should have fried with the rest of them, in my opinion. That's me. But nonetheless, she, uh, she seemed, she seemed, uh, you know, that being said, she, she's going to tell him whatever she wants, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever's going to keep her out of prison, right? At that point. So I don't know if I believe some of the, the aspects of the molestation thing. Again, the more, the more details I'm getting and thinking about the situation, it seems like the, the, the target was that guy was the father. Again, it's interesting that he has some connections to some, some characters like Billy Graham, his father being the attorney for Billy Graham. Okay. Uh, how about like the immediate aftermath of the murders? Because I mean, you know, this is like, it's even weirder. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, apparently authorities whiffed on three separate occasions to apprehend Farrell and company before uh, they were finally uh, brought in in uh, uh, Baton Rouge. So you want right. to, take- and the way the guy got brought in Baton Rouge, quite honestly, doesn't make a lot of sense given the details you just explained. How are they so brilliant at evading law enforcement, but then make such a monumental error in Baton Rouge? The air being that Kesey girl apparently called her mother a deputy sheriff in, in South Dakota. Actually, no, it was, I think it was the Cooper. I think it was Dana. Was it the Cooper girl? Yeah, I think one of, the, so. one of the girls called their mother and their mother was a deputy sheriff. Which is why it's even weirder that you're saying that they got these long prison sentences and they let Windorf off Scott three when it's like right. Cooper was it's a weird until the only one who actually you know tried to get away from the uh, the group. From what I understand, right? If you were going to let any of the girls off, it would have been it would have seemed like it would have been Cooper first and maybe Kesey, but but certainly not Windorf. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I don't know. That's what I'm saying. It's it was an odd prosecution in my opinion. And and, uh, and again, if they're so brilliant at evading law enforcement. For, uh, on a numerous state manhunt and law enforcement knew what they were looking for and knew who they were looking for, right? There was no question. Like, we're looking for a white and a white car. No, they were looking for these kids, you know? And then they call the mother who's a deputy sheriff, like, come on, that doesn't make any sense. But that's how they were tipped off. So they need, they allegedly, they needed the mother to pay for their hotel room in Baton Rouge. Come on. That's, again, it doesn't, it doesn't compute in my mind. If you're trying to stay off the radar, which they'd already been doing, which they'd already been actively evading law enforcement, there's no reason to call a deputy sheriff mother of any of the girls and ask for money for and give them a specific address of a hotel. I'm just saying, I, f- I feel like there's probably more support to that story, and that's simply, again, a, a, at least a, in part, a false narrative. That's my opinion, at least. So it doesn't seem to compute. All right, so Farrell, I mean, as you've already been alluding to, had a lot of weird stuff in his background. He accused his grandfather of being a member of an underground organization called the Black Mask and accused him of performing satanic ritual abuse against him when he was five. So Farrell cl- not, claimed not just that his grandfather molested him, but that he had been subjected to satanic ritual abuse. Right, and again, and again, that's his mother's father, so... Uh, my my assertion would be the same goes for his mother. So right? okay, she she's a victim of the same stuff. Well, see, these allegations were widely dismissed. But like you're saying, his mother was also charged with soliciting sex from a minor, while uh, more than a few people who witnessed her with her son Rod Farrell believed that their relationship was 
incestuous quite frankly that, that's the rumor that's what i got <laughs> and, you know, this kind of goes Again. into like why you know she had lost custody of him too like for sure yeah for sure because she was actually like i said being charged with soliciting sex for a minor so all right she, and she again for, from some from folks who were you know the foster family the situation for feral his mother was a complete nightmare you know i got that from the preacher the the, the youth preacher's father you know so as far as why the the, the vampire co leader ended up in his house you know in foster care because and he told me that was his quote the, the the boy's mother's a nightmare or something like that you know to that effect i'm like oh well she sounds like a real treat <laughs> I, I believe it you know she sounds like a real nightmare but again what was she subjected to so that's what that's when i say about rod farrell's claims of molestation yeah there seems to be some validity there i'm not saying there's not validity there i'm just saying i don't see the connection with that being the motivate the, the you know the, the motivations for the murder right so like i don't know I, I do believe that like i believe his mother's a nightmare she's probably been subjected to similar activities and that's the environment Rod Farrell grew up in, right? Those were the influences he had in his life. And I, I, so, I, so I'm saying I, don't, I really circumspect to believe anything about a, a game when, when a child is, is in, in, in subjected to that environment, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very peculiar. And I mean, you know, kind of stepping back and you know looking at a big picture kind of thing of this you know you are presented with the case of a family that appears to have possibly had multiple generations of, of sexual abuse uh an incestuous nature um there are allegations of uh cold activity though again those have been widely contested um but nonetheless uh, they're present there. I mean, a lot of this is unfolding within about an hour and a half of a major military uh, installation, a major military base. Um, there were strange incidences in this region that drew MK Ultra people connected to MK Ultra at one point. Granted, this would have been forty or something years prior to the vampire cult, but it was. Well, I mean, you know, it, that they were. It's, it's the environment, right? You know what I mean? It's. it's that's kind of you can't have that culture exist in some places like if it exists in some places when, when would it like when did it stop right like if it, you say it's 40 years prior but like if you can't put your finger on when it stopped there's a good there's a strong likelihood it's still going on yeah and then i mean on top of that we have the prospect of these kids you know like you're saying making an 800 mile road trip to florida and then heading out towards um Louisiana again um I'm guessing that you're probably familiar with the hand of death for those of you uh, uh, listening to this who are unfamiliar with it this was a cult that uh the infamous serial killer Henry Lee Lucas uh claimed to be a member of uh that he alleged uh, operated principally out of um Texas Florida and uh Louisiana and yeah, he's an interesting character yeah, he is, and it's the know, only it, the it, only man that George Bush commuted from a death sentence as governor of Texas. It would Henry be Lucas. It would be tempting to dismiss Lucas's claims outright, but I mean, he made some, such as the Hand of Death, having a uh, paramilitary training facility in the Everglades, which was eerily close to where Andy Castro Cubans for the Bay of Pigs were trained. It's yeah, that's that's that, that I found that to be an intriguing point. Sure. Um, you know, I mean, well, but again, but again, George Bush, as governor of Texas, 
famously executed more more people than any other governor in modern history, at least. And he, like, for example, I know he he uh, electrocuted an old lady, uh, a retarded fellow. But Henry Lee Lucas, he's the only one that got commuted under George Bush's pen. So, I find that very odd. No doubt. So you've got this kid, Farrell, who's taking this cross-country road trip. Most of the people with him are females, minors. Um, he picks up another one in Florida uh, on his way through Louisiana, kind of going through this whole network. Um, as you've said before, you've alluded to, you know, there were some indications possibly of um, trafficking maybe uh, being tied to the family, too. I mean, oh, his mother was definitely, yeah, he's definitely involved in all the drug, drug biz down there in Murray regions. And uh, again, involved though with sex trafficking, because I mean, this also, yeah, she was a prostitute. Yep. A bit of She's a prostitute. It, it almost reminds me a bit of the allegations with the finders as well, because they actually found the one van registered to them in Tallahassee, Florida, where they had the kids in there who were unwashed and what have you, and supposedly sure. they were again en route to be taken to a special school, I think, in Mexico or something. So they would have. Yeah. I definitely see the hallmarks of a larger uh, organizing principle with this vampire cult. It's not, again, it's not just. Rod Farrell, right? Like it's evading law enforcement after they do the murders and, you know, they have this, well, he, has, he has a cult that encompasses a large geographic area of its membership. Then again, they're traveling a, a long distance to, to do a murder, right? And then uh, the murder in and of itself, again, is a ritualistic killing they conducted in this living room of this home. Um, then they travel, he's, they're, they're, they go to Louisiana, but for some reason they, they seem to have an importance to go to New Orleans. They had to get to New Orleans for some reason. And they seem to be on a short timetable. That's what I'm saying. Like, it has the hallmarks of other of other of adjacent activities to to going on or other other parties involved, if you will. Yeah, this is definitely one of the really peculiar things about all this because I mean, it's it was really trivialized. I thought, like, in a lot of the presentations of it by the media and so forth. But when you kind of big time back big and time. look at the areas that they were going to, some of the dates. I mean, you know, just the implications with these kids and what have you. Yeah, I mean, again, back to the trafficking thing. So his mother, Farrell's mother's debt was definitely involved in sex trafficking, drug trafficking, right? And again, in a place like Mary, Kentucky, that's Bible Belt, you know, the heart of the Bible Belt, these things stick out like sore thumbs. So obviously the townspeople know about it. They continue to go on, but how, right? If it's that, because like you go to New York City, I mean, I, I can, I'm walking down New York City, I'm like, well, that's a prostitute and that's a prostitute, you know, the, you know, you see DC the same way, you know, they, to the trained eye, they, they stick out on the, you know, like sore thumbs. Some of them are more apparent than others. I used to have uh, some sort of trans uh, hooker prostitute standing on the corner of my uh, block in DC screaming at three o'clock in the morning. That one's real easy to pick out. You know, you know, that one's a prostitute. Um, you know, I have to call the cops like, Hey, that trans hooker screaming on the corner again, you know, uh, DC Metro would never respond. They're, they're good for nothing. But anyway, uh, like you know, easy to pick out. DC Metro. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, that's a normal call again. I'm I mean, trans, one night I was the twelve trans like, tonight. Yeah, we'll go when they have seventeen calls. 17 I mean, calls. I walked into like DC Metro one night with this dude, probably who had like a whole freaking eight ball like spread out like on a mirror that he was holding. Man, he was just oh yeah, it's like right up on the cars. So that's our nation's capital. It's a wonderful place. It is. It is. Yeah. So you know, but a place like relatively speaking, a place like Murray, Kentucky. 
that sort of eight ball activity just in the middle of the train station like that, you know, that's going to stick out like a sore thumb. <laughs> and again, so does the vampire cult in Murray, Kentucky. So does the drug trafficking. So does the prostitution. So how these things go on in an environment as small and as opposed to these activities as that is what boggles my mind, just kind of on a strategic level. But nonetheless, you know, the kids directly involved with, with these, with these trafficking scenes, there was mothers, so likely satanic ritual abuse through his, grandfather and which is again what led him into foster care to begin with as a teenager um you know the guy's got an interesting dynamic he's working with here i just don't you know he he has the 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 right he's checking the right boxes to be involved in what i'm what i'm inferring is a larger network of activities yeah i mean it definitely appears so i mean certainly the modus operandi in this case is very similar to a lot of and if i'm not mistaken just prior to this time frame in kentucky was the kino not stationed up there in fort knox just south of louisville uh Um, no this he was there in the in the 70s uh like around i thought that was into the okay i thought that was into the 80s well you know but he, so he again, did start satanic grottoes though in that whole region, like around Louisville, look, going into like Ohio. So again, you well, there know, you go. That, be well, also too, there that's was, my next point. So you know, he he created a, he created an environment where that culture was going to continue to grow. Then it sounds like quite possibly. I mean, you also had the whole uh, the uh, the Nema thing too. What was it? Uh, gosh, I'm forgetting now. But they were, um, you know, the Order of Matt or something. They were connected to Kenneth Grands and all those people. They were based... Oh, oh you're talking about the um, the House of Mott? Yes, Temple yes, Mott? yes. They Temple were based Mott. out of... Mott. There we yeah, go. yeah, they were based out of Cincinnati, but they would go into... Yeah, they're uh, Typhonian OTO people, right? Uh, yes, yes, yes. From the type. Okay, yep. Mm. Yeah, so there we go. So there's another example of this same kind of culture of an environment that is breeding this kind of culture with these groups. Yeah. So I mean, it's definitely an interesting. And I'm not saying those groups specifically. That's not not in their charter to do to do to, do, uh, to involve themselves in these illicit activities. However, the membership of these groups, time and time again, continue perpetrating these activities, whether collectively as a group or uh, as some sort of you know rogue agent. Who knows? I'm just saying. The, the pattern is, is is well established. The only question is the organized nature of it amongst well, these groups. On that note, uh, let's uh, get into this other one here. So, as, as far as it goes, Farrell and his crew get all the attention as a for Kentucky vampire cults go. But there was actually another one active nearly at the same time, but in the eastern part of the state. So it revolved around a woman named Natasha Crenette, who spent much of her life in Pike County, Kentucky. So for those of you who are fans of Hellier and Pennyroyal, this is the county that Hellier the town is located in. It's also where Elkhorn City resides. That's where Dan Dutton claims to have encountered the Greek god Pan. Uh, Dan Dutton, by the way, has also been accused of being the smiley face killer, which I think is total nonsense. But just <laughs> another interesting dynamic to all this. Sure. Um, and and Pike uh, County, Kentucky, home of the McCoys. Hatfield's McCoys. Yes, the whole Hatfield McCoy thing played out here, too. It's right across the border from uh west virginia where you've got Blenheimigo yeah. county which also my grand my uh my grand folks vance are uh hatfields and mccoys the vance side is the hatfields and the, my grand my grandmother vance was a uh, mccoy she, they, they in fact they got married in pikeville yeah so. so this is another really weird area it's been weird for a very long time so. <laughs> 
JJ. Very, very weird is an understatement. I mean, like if you're not from that area, like if you're from somewhere completely not Kentucky and try to go to that area, it's going to be like Mars. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's, I've witnessed it with people that I, you know, going through like uh, Logan, West Virginia, where you know, my van side's from there, just to the, where the Hatfields are from. De- Devil's Ants Hatfield being my first cousin four times removed. Buried in the family cemetery there in Sarah Ann, uh, Logan County. Um, the uh, that's that's like Mars to people too, going through you know through like Logan, West Virginia. If you're if you're not like from anything remotely close to that, <laughs> Appalachian weird people house when I'm getting that. So yeah, Pikeville is the, the heart of that kind of activity for Pike Pike County. Yeah, no, I've definitely been told it's very clannish there. Um, you know, outsiders also stand out like sore thumbs. There you go. I was going to say, just like the vampire cult in Murray, Kentucky, if you're an outsider going through Pike County, they're going to they're going you're, you're going to get some looks. All right. So, are you familiar with the Cornette case? Uh, you know, actually, no, not really. No, I, just, I again, had I had I not been playing video games in the, in the chair of a vampire cult leader, I wouldn't be probably wouldn't be familiar with the other case. <laughs> to, be, to be quite honest about it. All right. So uh, Farrell's killing spree was in 96 and then Cornette's was in 97. And both occurred on, you know, with, uh, in the backdrop of road trips beginning in Kentucky. The final destination being New Orleans. So well, that's again, fascinating. Yeah, it's another like weird parallel. So, I mean, just what's your take roughly? I mean, from what I've told you on the uh, this just sort of strange overlap of these incidents. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly what I would expect there to be another group similar to that group, right? Operating within that same similar framework of the same network. And, you know, maybe this this is a, an anomaly. Maybe this group saw the, fer- the feral vampire cult clan. Uh, do their thing and they're like, well, they want, you know, they're very egotistical driven philosophy as it is. So then they're like, well, I want to be better than those vampires. We're the best vampires. It could be a one off like that, or there could be more of an organized nature to these activities and, the, and more of a targeted nature to the victims. And I, I tend to tend to lean more towards the latter than the former. All right. So here's some more details on uh, the Cornette case uh, in going from true vampires to central London here. In April of 1997, a sinister sextet of teenage vampires stole guns, ammunition, and $500 cash and fled their East Kentucky homes, crammed into a Chevrolet citation driven by the eldest of them, 20-year-old Joseph Reisner. Like the uh, Quintoxic Quintet from Southwest Kentucky, they were heading towards the vampire's dream of New Orleans when murder intervened. It wasn't planned, they said, and it had nothing to do with being vampires. It just sort of happened. At a rest stop on Interstate 81 near uh, Bailiton in northeast Tennessee, the Children of Darkness met a young family on their way home from a Jehovah's Witness conference that had taken uh, that had taken at its theme Isaiah 54:13, "All your children shall be taught by the Lord; the great shall be the peace of your children." There had been precious little peace, however, for these children. They all came from extremely unstable homes. All but two had documented sexual abuse. Apparently, they felt uh, they had nothing to hold on to and nothing but hate for the world, said Brandon Reynolds, a 22-year-old friend who met with the group right before the slangs. The fact that everything they see, if they didn't think it's bad news, then they think it's bullshit. The fact that they ain't never seen nobody do nothing that they felt that they should have faith in. They just felt like they had one long death to live out. 
All right. So anyway, as for the Jehovah's Witnesses, the spirit-filled young couple at the rest stop apparently thought they had something to say to the kids, sporting pierced ears, noses, lips, and eyebrows, black-dyed hair, and razor-cut arms. This is interesting. Apparently, they practiced uh, self-harm uh, back in the 90s when it really wasn't that common. Uh, Vidar and Delphinia Lillard uh, approached the six youngsters to engage them in a conversation of religious nature. Reisner and the youngest vampire, a tall, skinny 14-year-old with spiked hair named Jason Bryant, walked back to the car to change shirts while 17-year-old Karen Howe and the gang's 18-year-old ringleader, Natasha Cornette, chatted with the Lily Lids and played with their two children. Though Cornette had proclaimed herself as, quote, the daughter of Satan, six-year-old Tabitha Lillilid didn't see her that way. She smiled at the troubled teen and handed her a Hershey's kiss. What a cute little girl, thought Cornette. She'd like to take both of these uh, pretty little children with them on the road and, like, raise them. How cool would it be to go out in a blaze of glory? And then after words just ride off in the sunset with the kids in a van, you know, like Mickey and Maori and Natural Born Killers. These musings were cut short as Bryant and Reisner returned, and suddenly Reisner drew a 9mm pistol from under his shirt and pointed it at Vidar. I'm sorry to have to do this, but we need your van, he said, and directed the family to come with him. We're going to walk to the van, and you're going to take us for a little ride. Reisner ordered Vidar to drive and took the passenger seat next to him. Bryant sat in the captain's chair behind him with a twenty-five caliber pistol drawn on Delphania and Tabitha, who sat in the back next to the toddler in the safety net. Cornette and Hal sat on the floor behind the van's front seat. Tabitha started crying, and Delphia was singing and praying as much to calm herself as her children. Shut up, ordered Bryant, and she tried to, but she couldn't. In front, Vider Lillilid talked on and on about God as he drove, with Reisner brandishing the 9mm pistol. Please let us go, begged Delphinia, or he won't recognize you. Vider agreed. You kids all look alike nowadays. Well, you better remember your religion, snarled Reisner, because Christians are not supposed to lie. Well, Delphinia kept pleading, praying, and singing. Brian again snapped, shut up, calm down, Vider urged his wife. Nobody's going to hurt you, whispered Cornette to the woman. I promise, but the spawn of Satan lined. Vampire clan member Edward D. Mullins, 19, and Crystal Sturgill, 17, were following in the citation, and when they caught up with the van on a dead-end street road, dirt road, Reisner stopped and ordered everyone out. As the terrified family clung at their side of the road, Tabitha was crying uncontrollably, and Vidar put his hand over her mouth to quiet her. Brian asked Reisner what to do with the lily lids. I don't know, man. What do you think? I think we should kill him. Don't, cried Cornette at once. Reisner said, I can't do this, and put the nine-miller pistol on the floor of the van. Karen Howe later testified that Brian ignored Cornette's pleas to spare the family as Vider Lillilid took out his wallet and offered it along with the van and asked, just please don't hurt us. Cornette asked Vider to give the children to her so they won't be hurt. No, he replied the anguished father. If we die, then the kids will be hurt anyway. So they shot them all. Later, the vampires gave conflicting stories about how it happened, with some saying the first shot hit Delphinia in the side and the other saying Vidar took it first in the eye. The judge strongly suspected it was young Brian who fired the first shots, then emptied the 25 caliber pistol into them as they wept and begged, though others implicated Reisner and Reisner implicated Mullins. 
By most accounts, Brian headed back to the van for the second gun when Karen Howell looked back and saw Tabitha. She was standing over her mother and yelled, No! And he went right up to her. Oh, God, she wept. He went right to her and shot her and shot them all over again. He came back laughing. Meanwhile, Reisner was trying to turn the van around. All six vampires piled into the van. Reisner jerked the steering wheel to the right and deliberately ran over the couple as he drove their van away. Bryant laughed at the sight of Tabitha lying with her arms outreached out towards her father. He predicted that within a couple of hours the shooting wouldn't bother them. When the family was found in a ditch, the children were clinging to life and their parents' lifeless bodies. Altogether, the four victims had taken 17 bullets. Vider had six bullet wounds, Delphinia eight, shot through the head. The unconscious Tabitha clung to life until the next day. Only two-year-old Peter shot in the back and through one eye survived. All six vampires were arrested two days after the murders in Arizona, trying to enter Mexico in the Lilith's van. At a pretrial hearing, detention officer Sean Farrell, it's interesting, of Cochise County, Arizona, told the court that he was booking Mullins. He asked, what's going to happen to me? I said, I don't know. And then he asked, what's usually happens to people after they've done what I did? Farrell's incident report also quotes Mullins as saying, Joe said, we wouldn't get caught. We went through them, uh, people's pockets for money for gas. I don't think they were, they was dead. I don't want to kill no one. I didn't want them kids dead. Joe said he was going to kill them all. Mullins told Farrell that Reisner made him do it. Joe killed the people. I had a gun, but I didn't use it. He said the victims were crying, Farrell testified. He said, I told them to shut up. I remember it all. I wasn't on no drugs. I wish I hadn't done them uh, that to them people. Joe Reisner was alone in a cell on suicide watch when Farrell saw him sitting slumped over with his head nearly on his knees. When he tapped on Reisner's door, the suspect looked up and said, I'm a killer. Farrell testified, then he asked, will they give me the death penalty for this? Found in the vampire's victim's stolen vehicle were Peter's safety seat, Tabitha's doll, Duffin's purse, as well as the Book of Black Magic and the complete Book of Magic and Witchcraft. Sturgill had the keys to the family's home. Hal had Tabitha's Hello Kitty diary on a chain. Natasha Cornette was found to have a dozen uh, cuts on her arms and explained that she could only communicate with Satan after cutting herself and bleeding. <laughs> so that's a little backdrop on these uh, vampires. Um, there's That's a bizarre tale. Yeah, it, it definitely is here. And uh, there's some... And bizarrely in, similar to the other vampire cults activities and uh, even the escape plan, it sounds like, to New Orleans. Yeah, well, the I mean, the whole thing with New Orleans is a really interesting connection. And it's also fascinating that they were um, caught in uh, Cochise County in Arizona. Um What's interesting to me about that specifically is uh, more recently, because uh, Cochise is right, right there at the border. Uh, that's where business sure. is. And um, anyway, yes, uh, most recently. Kind of near Tombstone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tombstone is right in that area, which is another yep. interesting link with that. But recently, Howard Buffett, I think, one of Warren Buffett's sons has um purchased a considerable amount of land up there and i think this is actually where he was made like an honorary sheriff's deputy or something he basically was like trying to train some kind of paramilitary organization there interesting um, and i i'm not entirely sure 
but I think this might have been around the area the LeBaron family was operating out of in the 80s, you know, when they had that car smuggling ring between Mexico. Ooh. This is the fundamentalist Mormon family of the LeBaron. Yeah, it might be actually. Not, you know, I'm not I'm not precisely certain, but I think you're I think you're correct there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a strange there's a lot of strange activity in that region, just generally speaking. I'll, I'll let you finish your point, but there's a Bisbee's an interesting town. Bisbee, Arizona there. Yeah, yeah, and I've been to Bisbee. I, yeah, it's a cool. Actually, I'll be going back to Bisbee here in February. So yeah. Well, there's some uh, potential process, quote unquote, self-proclaimed process, church membership uh, connections to Bisbee, Arizona. Interesting. Yeah, definitely have to. Uh, I knew about some connections to the uh, Sovereign Order of Saint John, but I was not aware of the. Uh, uh, yeah, B- well, Bisbee, Arizona is the home of uh, Doug Stanhope, uh, stand-up comedian. He's uh his best friend is Marilyn Manson, the self-proclaimed uh, member of the Process Church, and their other best friend is Johnny Depp. Strange combination of characters, I agree. Um, I'm just saying, you know, I whenever I hear Bisbee and you know, or any of the one of those characters' names, or you know, I, I oftentimes, you know, you know, draw for grounds for more scrutiny and <laughs> what's going on there, you know. <laughs> yeah. So again, anyone, anyone, anyone who's you know Marilyn Manson is probably I can probably list a lot of things why I'm circumspect of that character in and of itself, notably his uh, military uh, intelligence, army, U.S. Army intelligence uh, major father. Um, you know, drawing a relative comparison to you know we were seeing inside the canyon from uh, uh, Dave McGowan or the one I series I did with the same treatments to uh, uh, the grunge scene out of Seattle in the 90s. Marilyn Manson falls in that same kind of that uh, same cookie cutter mold of, uh, you know, parent of a son son of a military intelligence operative. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And I mean, there's also a certain overlap to some of the families we've been discussing here. all right, so here's some more, by the way, on Cornette's uh, background, who was said to have been like the head of the vampire cult here. Um, like vampire mom, Sandra Gibson, that was uh, Farrell's mother, Cornette's mother, Madonna Wallen, testified to their dismal home environment. A single wide trailer in a cluster of hamlets in eastern Kentucky with quaint names like Paintsville, Marrowbone, and Betsy Lane. There are there was the physical and sexual abuse, the multiple suicide attempts, the self-mutilation, and mental illness. And again, like Farrell's vampire mom, after testifying, this young vampire's maternal unit fainted and had to be revived. Wallen, who was twice divorced and on disability following her latest nervous breakdown, also testified that she had let her daughter have other minors over for drinks because, quote, at least she was at home and not out running around. Just as Farrell's mother had described her son's bedroom as decorated with baphomets, pentagrams, and candles, Cornette's mother related that when Natasha and her five cohorts spent the night at their single-wide trailer, they had all slept together in Natasha's tiny room, which was fastened with graffiti. The truth is a lie. Grandma is a Satanist. Death is God's way of showing he cares, and I hate everyone. So, uh, yeah, that was a bit of a glimpse into her home life. That's probably a scary environment to live in. I would not want that on my walls. And apparently this was true of a lot of the other members of the cult, too, in terms of, like, sexual abuse and things like that. So, yeah, it's just again. Yeah, I mean, again, it seems to, it seems to you know, perpetrate a pattern or very similar to the other, the other vampire group. And at that rate, if it if it's, has so many correlations and patterns between 
direct direct pat, uh, direct correlations and patterns between the two two groups, and they're not separated by what more than a year, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, the Pharaohs. It's the same time frame. I mean, like ninety-seven. I mean, I think like, like I said, it's just strange how like eerie these two like parallel each other. Though there was definitely more of a debate over who was really who had actually done the killings. But again, it's also interesting in this case. It's Jehovah. Well, the mechanics. Yeah, the mechanics sound very similar, right? Yeah, you're right. No, I mean, it was kind of uh, some people tied to some pretty prominent Christian groups. I mean, yeah. Well, I was going to say they killed some ancient alien cargo cultists. That's going to be a red red flag for me already. Like, he's <laughs> yeah. killing these Jehovah's Witnesses. But, yeah, yeah I mean, because, uh, again, you're talking the Typhonian OTO type of type of uh, philosophy or, you know, or, or that type of cult, you know, uh, framework of understanding of, of their framework of, of uh, the world. Um, that's an ancient alien cargo cult. And, you know, maybe these ancient alien cargo cultists are, are, are feuding with one another, Hatfield McCoy style, and they got to go knock off one of their one of their uh, competitors for some reason. I don't know, but it seems it, it. I do draw those kind of questions when I see the victim is a. I mean, it, again, they kind of play it off as random, but the victims of Jehovah's Witness family, it, 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 they say it's random, but if you ask me, there's some planning going on there, right? They drive them to a cul-de-sac. They other kids know to get in the other car, right? There's yeah. some, it, it, it has, it has the hallmarks of, of some organizing organizing and planning going on before, before the actual event, how much, I mean, there's probably grounds for further research into how much planning went on because again, you know, it's got, it's a different murder than the, than the girl giving Rod Farrell the key to the home and going in there and killing her parents with a crowbar, um, different type of modus operandi in this, in this, in this crime, in this murder. However, Nothing about it seems random to me, you know, if you're, you know, if you're going to, well, it's obviously a different mode of operations. They're going to kidnap a family at a rest, at rest area, you know, right, you know, when they stop the vehicle. Well, uh, you know, that's a ballsy I mean, move. Think, you know, that's a very ballsy move. You know what I mean? Like, well, I know, I, mean, I know highly like, trained guys that cannot pull off, pull that off. That's what I'm saying. Like, I don't, I'm questioning the, the lack of planning in this environment. Well, I mean, you also have the possible specter again of trafficking, you know, sex trafficking specifically, because I almost wonder if this is really why Cornette wanted to grab those kids and not for some sort of, you know, this ridiculous natural born killers fantasy that she describes. Or there something. you go, Stephen. Once again, you read my mind here, man, because that's, again, these I mean, stories that get perpetrated in the record. Going to New Orleans, that was the original yeah. destination of both cults. I mean, yeah, which they, they have a they have a trafficking problem in New Orleans. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. It is a port, so it's very easy to get in and out of. And they have a long history of a tra- of a sex and human trafficking problem in that town. They're different than Portland or you know San Francisco, you know, because these are cities also, of, that are ports. Well, I mean, also in a prominent goth scene too. I mean, that's actually kind of another. I think Trent Reznor was actually living in like the New Orleans area, for instance. Sure. I'm so. Yeah, I've I've been down here as an adult here in recent years a number of times through New Orleans, and I uh, I'm not I'm just into saying all that, you know if, I like you, to take if theoretically in, if you were theoretically trying to say groom minors who were into goth, you know, to maybe get into no, that's a great spot. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. They're, they're, you know, the, that the would culture be a good area to introduce them with. No, hundred percent. No, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to talk over you there, but no, hundred percent. I wasn't saying you're wrong at all. Yeah, hundred percent. That that environment's very unique. It's got like uh, the voodoo piece. It's got like the a new age piece. It's got like uh, you know, because in recent years I've been more and more studying cult over progressively over the last probably twenty years and thirty years of my life since I used to be in a cult, uh, the Mormons. Uh, the uh, 
you know, I, I'm attuned to these when I go to different places and, and, you know, looking to see what they, you know, what the underground or cult scene is looking like around there. And, and New Orleans is a very unique environment for sure. Yeah. You know, as far as all that goes. So if you, if you were going to want to integrate somebody into some, into that environment, that would be a, a fast track way to do it for sure. Yeah. I could see that. All right. So another interesting overlap with the occult connections between these two vampire groups is what I wanted to get into both Farrell and Cornette were accused of dabbling in ceremonial magic, yes, but in both instances, specifically, they were said to have used the Simon Necronomicon. It was the grimoire that was singled out most often for both Farrell and Cornette as the one that they used. Those, of course, widely believed that Peter Lavenda was either the sole or principal author uh, behind the, the Simon Necronomicon, possibly the group of researchers helping him um so it's oh, also sure have you ever seen the author photo of simon uh, uh it's it's lavenda wearing a fake goatee i i'm not making this up uh it's it's also interesting to know too that lavenda i believe Clint, or I mean, maybe it was simon i don't know which one specifically but they claim to have done some of the backdrop research on this on the sumerian aspects of the simon Necronomicon at uh the University of Pennsylvania, which, as we've been discussing, Ooh, interesting. Started, uh, recording that was actually founded by the American by a branch of the American Philosophical Society, which was closely connected to the Society of Cincinnati. So, anyways, you no, know, that's that's interesting. Yeah, if you haven't seen the photo of the the official quote unquote official author photo of, of Simon, I'll, I'll I'll dig it up and find it and shoot your way. Because if it's not a fake beard or goatee he's wearing, it's like it's laughably like dyed black. Like he's much younger, obviously. When did when did when did that get published? Like, yeah, he would have been thirty-five like, years ago. Yeah, it was like seven. Yeah, so or something. Yeah, it's it, it's a funny looking picture, but it's definitely Lavenda. There's no question about it, you know. <laughs> and okay, so Lavenda, he's done probably more than anyone to promote the high weirdness around Kentucky. And Simon also even kind of snidely comments on the Farrell case in uh, the Dead Names book. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what's your take on all of this? Well, it, you know, speaking of uh, you know, groups like the House of, or the House of Mott, the Temple of Mott, and the Typhonian Order of the OTO, you know, these ancient alien cargo cults. Uh, oh, actually, group. by the way, Lavenda was in contact with members of the Temple of Mott, like some of the. Well, he's a he's a former member of the Typhonian Order, correct? Right? Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was yeah. in communication with them back in the seventies around the time. That's not surprising to me at all. Oh. Yeah, it's not surprising. <laughs> he's a very prolific character, that Lavenda. So it's not surprising to me at all. He a lot of places doing a lot of things. I I have a lot of questions about some of the intent. Mind you, he does produce some good some good work. So I you know I can't really argue with a lot of his research. Um. But yeah, so I, I think it's, you know, uh, you know, I don't know what the vampire connection is to those kind of those kind of groups, but I'm also not in those kind of groups. So I, I honestly don't know that there is or is not any sort of connection. But my point being is there are a lot of these kind of uh, Typhonian OTO, Temple Mott, Temple Set groups floating around Kentucky in modern era. Right. And, you know, they're engaged in the cold things and who knows what else oftentimes associated with elements of drug trafficking and sex trafficking, like is seen in the, the feral case. Um, you know, this feral and vampire business and for both cults, it came from somewhere that knowledge and philosophy and understanding of creating this vampire cult and having these rituals of blood drinking and ritualistic murdering people. These are not things that Rod Farrell came up with by himself. Right. Coincidentally, it doesn't seem like the, the, a, a similar group, 
across the state, probably what, 200 miles away, 150 miles away, we'll call it. Now, what about, is that about right? From Murray to Pike, Pike County, that's probably about 150 miles, right? You have a separate group, same time frame, developing the same, the same principles, understanding and ideas and go and do the same activities and literally are going to the same place in New Orleans. I just seem to think that, that it may not be the, uh, the uh, OTO groups, the Temple of Sad or the you know, Temple of Mott, may not be those groups specifically, or it may not be people involved in those groups, but there's a culture and environment where those groups thrive. And clearly some other group is thriving that has spawned this vampire culture that seemed to have erupted in a murder spree on two separate occasions out of Kentucky in the late 1990s. Very odd. Oh, yeah. And another interesting point, too, that it just occurred to me with that is the Temple of Mott actually relocated to New Orleans. That's where their publishing house is now based out of. Really? That's that is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's a very there's a very diverse, uh, you know, culture of these different cult groups going down to New Orleans. I, you know, it's very, it's very visible to me when I, the, the, you know, the, I was down there for a wedding, maybe four days. It's been a long weekend down there for a wedding, maybe four years ago now very was very apparent to me you know it wasn't wasn't lost on me that, that there's a lot of weird stuff going on around down there and i a lot of grant a lot of it's later at night you see a lot of weirder activities but and especially in a town like that that this doesn't really close but i wasn't there anytime near mardi gras or any major activities it's just a random weekend in december you know all right, so another interesting person pushing these mythos is Arch Discordian priestess Sandra London. London made a name for herself when she collaborated on a book called Killer Fiction with convicted serial killer G.J. Uh, 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 Schaefer, whom she had dated in high school. Now, she later did, yeah, a curious relationship with the <laughs> Gainesville Ripper Danny Rollins, resulting in a mock wedding from prison. London also promoted the writings of Keith Hunter, Just uh, Person, the so-called Happy Face Killer, who actually used the smiling. Okay. Yeah, I'm familiar. It was around this time that she started cozying up to Farrell, where he'd been arrested in uh, prison or was incarcerated in Florida, and Farrell actually wrote to her. Farrell and Cornette would later be cornerstones in her uh, work, True Vampires, which I've quoted from extensively throughout this. London has done a lot to mold the mythos around serial killers for decades, including the nation of the notions of a nationwide cult. So what's your case on her showing up so much in the uh, both of these vampire uh, 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 cult uh, incidences here and promoting them in her book? Yeah, I mean, it seems to, to me, in my mind, it seems to paint a picture of a larger framework <laughs> of, as she as she asserts, a network that she may be involved in, it sounds like. <laughs> you know i did not know the the, the prior relations with the uh the serial serial killer from high school that's i mean this lady's been involved in this kind of activity her whole life well she you know? also i can't remember i don't think she actually wrote for the magazine true detective but i'm pretty sure she read it and she might have done some letters with that too which is another like weird thing about this and her whole life actually has a similar trajectory to the um Oh, it was the woman who had dated Ted Bundy, I think, and then also had ended up writing for True Detective at one point. Uh, okay, yeah. So, Ted Bundy, the Mormon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of, like, uh, very strange stuff. And then on top of that, like the most recent book that London wrote was called, I think, Good Little Soldiers. And it's 
essentially about these two kids who are brought up in a military family. They are subjected to horrendous physical abuse uh, by her, by their father, who is also a, um, he's an active duty military man who's also essentially a serial killer off base. He goes around killing lots of people. Um, this is based on a true story? or <laughs> Yeah, this is supposedly based, it was supposedly actually written by um the the it sounds the daughter um and then london you know, apparently allegedly only wrote like the intro and like the outro or something like that i mean it sounds like exactly what we're talking about today relative to some weird activities going in and around fort campbell kentucky <laughs> yeah yeah that's like what i'm saying is it's just she came out later with this book supposedly that this lady has written recounting her childhood and then on top of that she goes into how she was brought into the military base and they were subjected to yeah. you know all these mk ultra type things by former nazis and what have you and... i mean it sounds it sounds realistic it sounds plausible to me <laughs> it does i mean again i think there's a real nazi problem generally speaking and i can bit of a topic of a different discussion altogether but dating back from obviously the project paperclip days and whatnot but too too present but yeah the uh, i mean it sounds like a plausible situation to me and again it sounds like uh, again this lady's been involved in this these kind of things her entire life right and rod farrell's got a deep obsession with serial killers himself he, he does um pretty intricate artwork of uh you know all your standard your ted bundy's your ed guys your you know, the, 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 the usual uh, suspects of serial killers, you know, the night stalker, Richard uh, Ramirez and Richard Ramirez grew up with his, uh, his cousin who was a member of uh, the U S army special forces. who was part of the Phoenix program in Vietnam. And that's who taught Richard Ramirez how to kill. So back to the, the special operations and the uh, ritualistic murder right there for you. What about the um, the Discordian aspects of this? Because on top of everything else, uh, Sandra London actually became a very good friend of Carrie Thornley's um, towards the last decade or so of his life. In fact, I think she helped him put together his uh, one book about the Kennedy assassination and so forth. And, okay, yep, 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 okay, so, I'm hip, yep. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, I'm always circumspect about the Discordians personally. I mean, I mean just using Ray Barker as an example. I mean, Lavenda oh, definitely was clapping in a lot of those same circles as well. Um, of course, he sure. talks about, and Simon, I should say, in Dead Names, talks about the overlap between the uh, Robert Anton Wilson fans and the market for the early Simon Necronomicon, Simon Necronomicon and Dead Names. So, okay. again, it's it's just fascinating. Well, that's an interesting reference then. Because you have a lot of these Discordians involved in shaping this narrative and then obviously with the stuff that Lenfin has written as well i mean this sort of broader notion of these nationwide this nationwide serial killer cult yeah in the same sure and i mean these guys are all connected to a lot of these weird groups like you're saying i mean lavenda had a lot of ties with the typhonian oto sandra london knew carrie thornley personally thornley actually when he was living in new orleans had dealings with the process church and there was another uh discordian member who was very deeply involved with the process in new orleans as well no absolutely uh tommy giobamler he's the attorney working there with allegedly with you know according to Jim Garrison's investigation, Carrie Thornley worked out of Guy Bannister's office as an operative similar to, to Lee Harvey Oswald. And Tommy G. Baumler was the uh, attorney working there out of the out of the same office 
retired FBI uh, ex Bomber wasn't actually. It was actually this. I can't remember her name. Um, but it wasn't was, Bomber. Bomber wasn't a Discordian though. But there was no, this- no. What I'm getting at there is he's he's the attorney that incorporated the Protestant Church. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, Carrie yeah. actually like besides that, so, Carrie was actually. So you already have, but I'm saying you already have an epicenter there with Carrie Thornley of some of these other weird activities, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. No, I think I'm very circumspect. As you point out, a lot of the activities of Discordians and Carrie Thornley and, for that matter, Robert Anton Wilson, who lived in the backyard of Bohemian Grove but claimed he never heard of Bohemian Grove. That's a weird one for me. Um, literally lived in the backyard of it. Um, and uh, these characters of the Discordian Society, I mean, they may they may be having a, a nice shit and giggle on everybody, but, you know, they do they do seem to perpetrate a lot of these things collectively in an organized manner. And they have these these narratives that they push forward on certain subjects. And I'll use Gray Barker as an example because they're in uh, West Virginia, the Flatwoods Monster. In my opinion, that's all a, a creation of the Discordians, right? And Gray Barker himself being a Discordian. In my in, in my assessment of that situation in years past, I was like, well, this guy, he seems suspect. And then while well, I don't discount all the things that happened in the Mothman situation in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, I'm big in West Virginia history, obviously, more so than I am, you know, creatures and aliens and stuff. But all the events that transpired, and I'm a big fan of John Keel, you know, from, you know, the Mothman author. But all the events that transpired with John Keel in the Mothman story in around Point Pleasant over that two and a half or three year period that they occurred. You know, he was friends with Gray Barker. You know, they knew each other. They were both journalists. So... Um, to a certain degree, I think some of the injured cold stuff that, that uh, was going on with the, in the, weird, the other weird kind of phone calls that John Keel would get during that time, you know, I didn't think maybe it, it seems to be possible that his friend Gray Barker was taking a, having a discordian shit on John Keel about life and was uh, trying to, you know, perpetrate those things on him. That's just me, you know, maybe those things happened. Maybe Gray Barker didn't have anything involved, but it's weird to me that, you know, when you see these discordians involved in these strange narratives, and we find out the people that are all involved pushing the narratives are all Discordians, I have to say. Well, that's odd. I, I question what's really valid in that in their narrative at that point. Yeah, it's um well I'm not I've never seen uh Gray Barker listed as a Discordian, but he was a good friend of Alan Greenfield, who definitely uh, I'm pretty sure. I mean I could be making I it could up. definitely <laughs> see it because Greenfield sure actually knew Thornley. <laughs> I mean he lived in Atlanta, I mean near Thornley well, many I, years, I mean so. I did not know I did not know that Barker and Greenfield were friends, so that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure Gray Barker was in a bit of Discordian. I, again, I could be. Yeah, I could like, definitely see. Maybe conflating that with somebody else, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly sure. I don't, I, I couldn't tell you the reference where I, where I learned that a piece of information, but uh, you know, it's probably out there somewhere. <laughs> I just, uh, but I, I know what you're saying. I, I agree with you. Drawing into question a lot of these narratives that are being pushed by Discordians, I just think. The nature of them being a discordian is to push these obtuse narratives to convince people of and then have a giggle about it, it seems. So I don't know. You know, it's odd. Yeah, no, I mean, it absolutely is. But I mean, it's Greenfield and Thornley were friends, though, huh? Oh, yeah. They knew each other really well. Yeah. During the time in Atlanta. That's so. interesting. Because mm-hmm. Greenfield's another, he's big into the Thelema, right? He's a big. Th- yeah, he was right? a. Yes, yes. He only recently uh, left it. He told me after, I think, 40 or 50 years of practice, he realized it was a fascist ideology. <laughs> it took him that long, huh? <laughs> Apparently so. 
Yeah. So when I, when I say about a Nazi problem, that's kind of what I was getting at. You know, all of these Thelemic organizations, be it the OTO or the Typhonian OTO or any of these various offshoots that go on through time. You know, these the, the underlying principles of all these organizations seem to be extremely Nazi. To the point where, you know, Process Church obviously is, is a good example of how how they venerate the the Nazi, a lot of the Nazi ideals and, you know, the the holidays that they celebrate within their philosophy or Nazi events, you know, days of Nazi events, Hitler's birthday and you know, Hitler's death and stuff like that, you know? Yeah, no, totally. It just seems to be an ongoing, that's just another pattern that represents itself along with these same groups. Each one of these groups seem to be rooted in those philosophies. Well, do you have uh, any additional insights on the vampire cults or anything here before we sign off, sir? No, I, Stephen, I appreciate the invite to discuss this. I actually have never told that story. Well, I mean, I've probably told it once or twice, but it's not a story I tell often, <laughs> the vampire cult story. And it happened 24 years ago, so it's it nice to recount that. And I appreciate sharing the tale, and uh, it's a great conversation. I learn something new every time we have a, we have a discussion here, and uh, I appreciate the invite again. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, hopefully I'll have you back in here soon so we can talk some in here and vice. I'm definitely looking forward to that. I'll see you, you finished the film and you enjoyed it. Oh yes. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Oh yeah. It's a good, I, it's one of my favorite, one of my favorite films of released in recent years, you know, like, you know, it's not, well, not a lot of great films produced in the last decade. <laughs> yeah. That's putting an understatement, but yeah, it was a good one. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll be back with some analysis of that here in the near. Oh, that'd be great. That'd be a good show. Well, on that note, I guess we'll sign off for now. As always, I hope you guys have enjoyed as much as we did recording it. And with that, I say to you, good night and good luck to you all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up. Sick and tired of fucking up. Sick and tired of pushing luck. In it. Swallow what I'm about to spit Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing this I took it to the go Jay Blu-ray, my people there, they feeling me Down low, skin, roll more characters than Stephen King Said I'm just working at the quarry, y'all I ain't in a hurry, y'all Come on, baby, pick me up Out here in my wiki, up Stuck down in this stick Hut is hot as hell, I tell you what Put it up and knock it down Moving on that big around Come on mama, jump down Turn around, do it for me Stick it out, say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump baby, we gotta go Hands tied, blindfold Jump into that battle zone I said it's time to get the fuck out Cause they done let the wolves out They're coming with that heat Mama shooting up the street Mama, fight or flight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama, no retreat Mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street Tell me that you good for it You want peace, go to war for it Say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump, baby, we gotta go Screaming with me Scream, Geronimo Never getting used to it, got bells of weed
shooting catapults with Santa wet diffused in it. Shoot it over the castle wall, the Migra can't patrol it off from Berlin to the Great Wall. The greatest walls are bound to fall. So legalize it, Vato, about the Genghis Chapo. Come on, legalize it, no need to advertise it. The weed cures the cancer, everybody even caught or realized it. The farmer don't make cash money when we rock that stash, honey. Best believe they sooner take it out your ass, Sunday. Come on, the man ain't getting wealthy with people getting healthy, right? Talking about high AZ, talking about that BMC. We got no economy if we ain't got no enemy. The Popo and the BP, DHS and Army, Honeywell and L3, Razor Wires, UAVs, Officer, excuse me, please. Said I'm just eating my burrito, not the droids you're looking for. See you all on payday, see you at the Safeway. On crazy checks, BP on that fast pay. I sing my hooly blues, y'all. I don't make the rules, y'all. Just paying my dues, y'all. But I'm just saying, sorry, hippies. If Great White Father don't make payroll, forget about your maple.